everyone, and welcome to the Actually Autistic Podcast with my guest today, Tema Crimpley. Tema has a bachelor's in religion and a minor in humanities classics, but she's really excited because she is now getting her master's in social work so that she can become an autistic advocate. Welcome, Tema. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you for having me. Tema, at what point did you start to suspect that you might be autistic? Well, I always knew I was different. I mean, just in relation to my peers and how they treated me and mm-hmm. how my family treated me. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I was 24 that I officially received the autism diagnosis. And how was that process of getting a diagnosis for you? Was that difficult or were you fortunate in having resources close by you? Well, I had a diagnosis before and I was kind of grandfathered into it. So I see. So you had that diagnosis as a kid. Yeah, I had a different, I had a nonverbal uh, learning disability, not otherwise specified. Mm-hmm. And then when the DSM-5 came out, that was eliminated and I was automatically given the diagnosis, autism spectrum disorder. I see. So they went back and went, oh, wait, we know what this is. (laughs) We know what we call this now. And so then you automatically kind of got that diagnosis. But it wasn't until you were 24 that you felt like you accepted that? Well, it wasn't even that. It was when I first got my real diagnosis. I had been given so many different diagnoses and I'd gone through so many different providers and mm-hmm. people in general. It was confusing, but to actually hear the word autism and know what that was, was a relief. I'll bet. So what were some of the misdiagnoses? Oh, <laughs> let's see. Uh, conduct disorder, Oppositional defiant disorder, some kind of behavioral disorders, <laughs> mood dis- dis- disorders, just all the things they label kids when they can't figure out mm-hmm. that it's autism. Mm-hmm. And then did they try to give you medications for those disorders? I started medication when I was three. I think my parents were very pro-medication, and I'm glad they were. But my mother emphasized to me that they tried everything before medication. But it wasn't until I was 24 that we found the right medication. So it happened at the same time. I see. So you went through a bunch of stuff and it wasn't working. And then when you got your actual diagnosis, then you were able to find something that that worked for you. Well, that's heartening. It is. Once you got the official diagnosis, did you feel like you had to kind of process that? Or was it just like, yeah, I kind of knew this all along and now I just have the the right word for what it is that I'm experiencing. I had to process it, particularly because of how I'd seen autism displayed and also heard it talked about. Mm-hmm. I heard a lot of fear surrounding autism, a lot of anger and the talk about curing people. And that was kind of scary, actually. Yeah, yeah, I'll bet. Did you go through a process of a kind of life review where you went back over past experiences? Or, again, had you kind of been dealing with that all along? In a way, I had been dealing with it all along. I didn't Mm -hmm. have a name for it. But all of a sudden, things started to make perfect sense. Mm -hmm. And so once that happened, were you researching online? Were you looking for things 
to help you make sense of it? I did the research online. I also talked to people around me. Mm-hmm. And I happened to meet a lot of people online who were autistic. And just the information I found and heard about in general started to help me process it. And then did you go to some conferences or something like that? Yes, I've been to a few conferences. I went to two legislative advocacy conferences. Mm -hmm. I also went to a conference at my university where one of my fellow interns did a presentation. And then there were a few autistic self-advocates in the audience, including myself, who are bouncing ideas around in that room. That sounds like it would have been really fun and exciting. It was. And it was great because we actually had people listening to us and asking questions instead of talking over us. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) And how old were you when you finally had that kind of experience? I'd say 31. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Hi. So... (laughs) (laughs) So you're currently studying to be a social worker. When we were chatting earlier, you had mentioned that there's a conference coming up that you're going to be presenting at. And do you want to talk about when that is and where it is? Okay, it is the Sci-Axis Conference, and it is in Columbus, Ohio. And one of the keynote speakers will be Temple Grandin. And why can't I remember her name? But there is another woman who is an astronaut who will be coming in. Oh, exciting. But it's about accessibility in basically professional fields, mostly uh, STEM mm-hmm. fields. But some of my other intern friends and I will be jointly presenting. It will be a panel, not quite clear on that yet, mm-hmm. on the intersection of cultural competency, neurodiversity, and self-advocacy. One of the reasons that I asked to interview you is because I met you on Facebook and you had talked about how you were getting contacted by a lot of women trying to make sense of who they are. So how has that played out for you? Do people send you private messages? Is that part of what prompted you to go get a degree? Well, that part came later, but... People have been private messaging me, asking for resources, and even places to get diagnosed. been rather shocking, actually, because I've always had very quirky relationships with people, and a lot of them were from when I was in college or when I came out of college. And some of them are only a few years younger than me, and some are my age, so, so like, mid-20s, early 30s, and they're just figuring it out. Mm-hmm. So these are people that you knew in real life. Yes. And you have a, a fairly wide social circle, it sounds like. I do. So because you were out in terms of being autistic, because you were open about this in your social circles, and people felt safe telling you about these questions that they had about themselves? Yes, they did. I know a lot of autistic people, myself included, we really struggle with maintaining a social circle. How do you do that? (laughs) What, What do you think is the reason why these people 
continued to know you and really felt comfortable talking to you about this stuff? I think part of it is I happened to get lucky and I put myself out there. I went through meetup.com and joined a, a bunch of meetups that had interests of mine, including almost anything geeky. Uh-huh. And through two of them, I met some great friends and they have totally accepted me, which was something I never thought would happen. Oh, wow. That's wonderful. So what were those interests where you found friends that were so accepting? Board games, anything comic related, anime, uh, just if you can imagine every geeky interest in the world, not uh-huh. just computers, sure, but, but like Lord of the Rings, Star Trek, uh, Star Wars, books, just everything like that. That's how we all really met. I see. So you've got this nerd community. And, you know, I I say that in the most loving of terms, because I'm obviously a nerd as well. And you being open about being autistic. And these were people that had already maybe gone to conventions with you or interacted with you regularly. And so they're messaging you going, hey, I'm wondering if I'm autistic. Yeah, that's that's about right. Though with my first group of friends, it took a little longer uh-huh. uh, to come out because I was still processing it. But then they all laughed and said they had guessed a long time ago. Oh, <laughs> whoopsie. <laughs> yeah. I thought I was being so subtle. Yeah, yeah, not so much. <laughs> We're always the last to know, it seems like. Uh, yeah, in my case, nobody knew. Or if they if they did, they certainly didn't say anything to me. Partly because I don't really fit any of the stereotype criteria. And yet, you know, I dealt with losing multiple jobs and people feeling freaked out around me and not knowing why and so on. So it sounds in a way, because you weren't real verbal as a kid or verbal at all, that you sort of followed, in a sense, kind of a traditional trajectory for somebody who can be recognized as autistic in our culture. Well, I actually was verbal, which was very strange. Um, I, I was verbal very early on, and we never quite figured out why, but I wasn't able to to communicate even with words what was going on. Mm-hmm. So even though I could speak, it still made no sense. <laughs> right. So it was a different kind of communication difficulty. So you weren't mute in the terms that you were speaking, but you were still having difficulty expressing what was really on your mind. Did you do a lot of echolalia? Uh, not echolalia, but a ton of scripting. Right. <laughs> My right. mother still tells the story of how I watched Disney movies over and over until I had memorized every single line and song, and then I didn't watch it again. Ah, uh, yeah. You, you'd got it, and then you were ready to move on and memorize the next one. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Can you still repeat all those movies? Parts of it. Uh, I will sometimes go back to certain themes in my mind, like um, 
I'm right now for some reason Timon and Pumbaa are coming up. Uh huh. Uh huh. And so you were you were a big fan of the Lion King for a while. Oh yeah, Little Mermaid, uh, definitely Beauty and the Beast. Uh huh. So now that you're moving into this social work degree, how is it being back in grad school? Uh, how old are you now? I'm 31. You're 31, so that's a pretty reasonable age to be going to graduate school. It's, I mean, it's probably a little older than some of your cohort, but not like some of us that went back in our 50s. <laughs> <laughs> you can still remember really clearly what it was like to be in your 20s a few years ago. How are you finding that experience? Are you openly autistic to your professors? I am, and in the classes I'm in. Um, also, my supervisors know, and my fellow interns, uh, who are all graduate students, know. So when uh, you say interns, what do you mean by that? Well, all of uh, the social work uh, master's, uh, sorry, graduate students, we have to fulfill field hours under supervision, like practicing social work. Mm -hmm. And so we become student social work interns. We're still graduate students, but we act as interns in a certain setting. I see. And as an intern, are you asked to diagnose or are you more helping to file paperwork and doing intake and that kind of thing? I'm doing a variety of stuff. Actually, the place where I'm do working uh, the Nysonger Center is a very flexible environment. It is absolutely amazing. They basically have let me kind of figure out where I'm going and then supported me. And wow. then when I ha can't figure things out, they may give me some things to work on. Mm -hmm. And then all of my fellow interns are collaborative. My supervisors are collaborative. It's just constantly moving but in a very good way wow that sounds like an absolutely fantastic program that just sounds really wonderful and i i do kind of feel like when you go into a field like social work or child development unless you get really unlucky you tend to be surrounded by people who are caring and compassionate or they would not have gone into that field in the first place, right? Yeah, I would definitely say so. Yeah. The majority of people in the social work program and just in general are very kind, caring, and empathetic people. And not only mm. that, accommodating. Mm. Not just aware, accommodating and accepting. So what kind of accommodations have you asked for? Well, I'm, they never say I have to ask for breaks. I can take them. Uh -huh. um, when I have what I call sensory days, no one judges me if I need to go anywhere or if I don't wear exactly appropriate clothing. I am allowed to really talk to people about stuff and people help me process things. Um, executive functioning is a struggle. So my supervisor helped me set up like some lists and help me break things down. Mm -hmm. And they allow me to kind of adjust my hours if I need to. Mm -hmm. Like if during the week I'm having a horrible day, they just say, okay, then this day 
Uh, you don't have to do this, but you, you'll have to later either next week or later this week come in and maybe make up the hours. Right. Well, that's really actually very helpful information because we talk a lot on this podcast about all the ways that people don't accommodate autistics. And it turns out that accommodating us is not really that difficult, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. It's actually rather easy when you think about it. They're, it's very simple, and it doesn't take a lot of time or effort or even money. Right. Right. And your fellow grad students and interns, they're not upset that you have these accommodations, right? Are it, are they supportive of your situation and what you're going through? Yes, I've actually had some of them comfort me when I've been going through a lot. I've texted them and they've walked around the building with me. I've gotten hugs. <laughs> wow. Honestly, it sounds like heaven. I think we're all going to rush over and get masters in social work at Ohio State University. That sounds amazing. So kudos to the social work department there. Thank you so much for being a beacon in what can be an academic wasteland of abuse and <laughs> missed cues and horrible experiences. It just does my heart so much good to hear about something positive happening in that direction. So there's, you know, autism is a huge field. What would you like to specialize in? Just, I, I recognize that you could have a long career and these could change quite a bit, but What's your focus right now? Uh, Self-advocacy has been a big thing. I've also been mentoring a lot of people and uh, teaching social skills, but in a very practical way, <laughs> not like you have to learn things by do such and such. Honestly, the majority of us have been exposed to those exact same things a ton. But right. Let's talk about how to actually use them in real life. <laughs> Well, how about you give us one of those lessons? Do you have something handy, maybe a question that somebody had recently that, and you can talk about how you answered it for them? Well, we had one individual ask us what to do about her boss. Mm -hmm. He was not communicating in a way she understood. Mm -hmm. And she wasn't sure if she should take her cues from her co-workers or be up front with her boss mm -hmm. and so we ended up talking and she came to the conclusion that she would be up front with her boss and say hey I don't understand when you do this it makes no sense to me whatsoever please do this mm -hmm. and so I haven't heard if she's done it yet <laughs> <laughs> but uh she's said she would update us. Well, that's that sounds like really good advice. Do you have another one like that? A lot of uh, them come to us talking about family members and how to communicate with family members. Mm -hmm. uh, because a lot of them are very close, naturally, their families. They're usually the first line of support. But as they get older, there's a lot of conflict of what kind of support you should get or how they view you, how they talk to you. And learning how to communicate with your parents as you get older is very hard. Mm, yeah, no kidding. So what advice would you have for people maybe 
they're just starting to come to terms with the fact that that they are autistic. They want to tell their parents, how would you suggest approaching them? Say that these are parents and they they really don't know anything about autism and might even be autistic themselves, possibly. How would you start that conversation? Well, first of all, I would have some research with you. It doesn't have to be like the DSM or something like that. Just some basic research about what autism is, how it presents in people, and then choose a time that's quiet and a setting that's quiet where you're all comfortable. It can be in your home. It can be anywhere you're happy. Well, sorry, where you usually meet with your family. And then I would just basically say, hey, I have something I need to talk to you about that's really important. Can we meet and talk? Actually schedule it. Don't go, don't do this by the seat of your pants. (laughs) Like, or like just wing it or whatever. Mm -hmm. But um, put it in the schedule because then they will take it seriously. Sit and take the time to explain why you think or you know that you are autistic. Mm-hmm. And then say, I know the next steps, but I would like your help as well. And what would you expect what kind of help is common for people to need, you feel like, from their families in that situation? Because we may have some of those family members listening. What can they do to make it easier for the newly discovered autistic person to adjust to this new identity? First of all, do not be dismissive about how they talk about themselves or about any of their symptoms. That's a real big deal. Uh, I've seen a lot of people try to tell a newly uh, autistic person or like self-aware autistic person how they should speak about themselves or Mm -hmm. their medical information, personal information, any of that. And there's still this encouragement to suppress symptoms. And let me think about this a moment. Also, be there when they have to do something with a professional or be there mm-hmm. when they're struggling with something that includes independence, whether they struggle with driving or maybe they have trouble cleaning up after themselves. Don't fault them for it. Just be there to offer assistance. That, but also know when to back off. <laughs> yeah, right? Know when to go, okay, you know, you know what you're doing here because you're the autistic and you're the one living in your body. And it's, it's such a hard thing for family members, for parents in particular. I'm a mom, and I'm constantly struggling with how much do I help? You know, how much help is too much help? And how much of letting somebody stumble and fall should I do before I offer a hand? And so I think that's really good advice. And obviously checking in with your autistic family member regularly to say, hey, how's it going? You know, how am I doing in terms of helping you? Because the autistic person will tell you, right? They will say, (laughs) they will say, oh, yeah, they'll be honest, right? We'll be honest. We'll either say, oh, gosh, I really could use a little more help with this executive function stuff. Or, 
you know what? I've got this, Mom. Thanks. I love you, but I think I need to do this part alone, right? We can <laughs> we need to be able to say those things and hear those things, I think. So I'm finding this really interesting and helpful information. How would you approach somebody, say it's a significant other, and you happen to have been doing some autistic research on your own, and maybe you feel like it doesn't apply to you, but perhaps your significant other could benefit by looking into it. How would you suggest that they broach that conversation? Well, I would be upfront. Uh, I would again do something similar, like I said about how you uh, talk with talk with your family, and then say. I'm not sure about this. I feel like this some, there's something there, mm-hmm. but I would like your help. And could you help me with this research? Can we do this together? Mm-hmm. I think when you say, can you help me? Mm-hmm. That's a big thing. Instead of saying, I need this. Need right. this in different situations uh, is a good one. But when you're first starting out, say, can you help me? Mm-hmm. And there's usually a natural instinct when people hear that to mm-hmm. help. So if this is a situation where you're looking at the person across from you and you think they're autistic, and so you say, can you help me with this research? And then you're basically kind of hoping that in the process of them looking at this research that they will have that realization themselves? Yeah, that's the hope. Mm-hmm. And if they don't, they don't. They'll get there on their own mm-hmm. most of the time. Right. And let me be clear, people. I don't think that everybody has to diagnose for themselves uh, or come out as autistic. I think there's a great many autistic individuals. It's working for them. They don't care. <laughs> or even if it's not working for them, they may be in a situation first of all, where it's not safe for them to come out as autistic or it won't benefit them to come out as autistic. And we absolutely support you in that decision and those circumstances. All that said, for me and for, from what I can tell, hundreds if not thousands, possibly millions of people, understanding that we're part of a community has been incredibly liberating and quite joy-filled. Don't you think this realization that we belong to a real tribe? It has been joyful. It's honestly a relief to know there are people like me and celebrate autism. Mm -hmm. Autism doesn't mean you're broken. It's just you're a different person. You deal with the world differently. And... That's not a bad thing. No, you know, especially when you realize that so many of the people with these differences have made such a huge difference in the world. I remember, like, I used to get criticized a lot for being a nonconformist. Well, I'm an artist. I'm a designer. I'm a creative person. You cannot be creative and conform at the same time. That's not... (laughs) (laughs) That's not how it works. So 
if people have told you all your life, oh, you know, they walk to the beat of their own drummer, they're in their own world, they're doing their own thing, all those different ways that people have of telling us that we don't fit in, that's a good thing. And obviously people like Greta Thunberg and Bill Gates, you know, who we can all love to hate, but nonetheless, you know, here we are using his methods to communicate with the world. And obviously there's a lot of other autistics of note that have done amazing things. Nikola Tesla, you know, who knows how many of us have enriched the world. Mary Curie. Pardon? Mary Curie. Oh, Mary Curie. Do we think she's autistic? Mm Mm-hmm. So how do we go back in time with a diagnosis that didn't exist then and go, yeah, I think Mary Curie's autistic. Listen to the stories or read about the stories surrounding their lives. You will find some evidence in there, mm-hmm. mainly in social and how they spoke and what, and even how they dressed. Like for instance, Beethoven, they prob- they say he was probably a combination of bipolar and autism. He was known for basically walking down the street with wearing tattered clothes, food on his his uh, <laughs> shirt, and conducting as he walked, and all and all the children and dogs following him around town. <laughs> Mozart was known for being childish, crawling under tables, insulting his patrons. (laughs) That's all really true. And, you know, if you listen to classical music stations, you would think that these folks always walked around very buttoned up, very proper, because there's this sort of very hoity-toity kind of vibe around classical music. But these people were just as disruptive as any rock stars are today as any music stars are today they were definitely flaunting convention i had never heard that about beethoven though i just i love that image that's just freaking amazing that's wonderful yes and some of the best quotes from him uh, like a patron that was a prince Uh uh-huh was really upset with his behavior and then beethoven looked at him and said There are many princes. There is only one Ludwig van Beethoven, and he walked out. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I love that. That's amazing. Can you imagine if Beethoven had had Twitter? (laughs) (laughs) Or Mozart? (laughs) Oh, God. Mozart's music scandalized people, particularly his operas. He was known for choosing subjects that people thought were horrific, like talking about affairs, uh, magic, stuff like that. And people were like, oh, my God, how can you do that? Right. Why not? Exactly. Music has been an amazing way for autistic people to get their point of view across when they couldn't do it in a conventional means. And that's been happening since as far back at least as Mozart, right? I mean, you know, we we know this. And so that's kind of really 
exciting. Do you feel like social work is an equally good way for autistics to express themselves out in the world? Yes, I would actually say it's probably a very safe environment to do so. Mm -hmm. This is a world that wants you to speak. It's actually in the code of ethics to advocate for others. And that includes yourself. And this is a group of people that wants to, they want to learn, they want to know things. They're constantly reinventing things. It's not a stagnant field, which is amazing. That's really true because unfortunately a lot of academic fields can get very kind of hidebound and sort of stuck in this recursive loop of, well, that's how they did it then. And so we either have to do that or argue specifically against that instead of just going in a completely different direction and doing something new and different. And so it sounds like social work allows that kind of space for those kinds of innovations to happen? Yes, it does. And I think part of it is the concept of the person in their environment in meeting them where they're at. We're not trying to make a person something they're not. We're meeting them where they are and taking into consideration their entire history. So it sounds like even more concerning in terms of getting a diagnosis for social work, you're looking at helping the person build a life that they're comfortable in. Exactly. The thing is, people don't come to social workers when they're at their best. They come to us when they're at their worst. And our goal is to help build them up again, either through direct practice with us or through other resources. So one of the things that I hear a lot of autistics say is they get the diagnosis and then they just feel abandoned. They're like, okay, here it is. Work it out. Figure it out. So what do social workers do after they've given somebody a diagnosis? Well, it's then investigating what that individual wants and what the family wants. It's the thing with social workers, you just don't drop someone. No, even if you can't actually help someone yourself, you can do referrals. Mm -hmm. But the idea is you're trying to connect people to the resources they need and mm -hmm. figure out a path instead of just kicking them out the door. Okay. So let's say, you know, I'm Rachel and I haven't had a diagnosis and I, you've, you've gotten your degree and you've, you know, all your millions of hours that you have to volunteer. What is it? A thousand hours? <laughs> Close. <laughs> 999. <laughs> <laughs> I do know my first one, I have to do 224 hours. Oh, wow. So, and you, you've done your 224 hours, you've gotten your license, blah, blah, blah. And I come to you and I say, hey, I think I'm autistic. And we go through the stuff. And in our, in our fantasy here, you go, yep, you know what? I think that you are autistic. And then at that point, where do you go from there? Well, 
it's finding out first what the individual wants. Do you want treatment? What kind of treatment? Do you want your family involved or not? Do you want medication or not? Or is there something going on with employment that we can help you with? Do you want to get an education? It's really about individual choice mm-hmm. and what you're looking to do next because the diagnosis is just the beginning. You're building an autistic life. Mm-hmm. That brings up, I think, something that's really important that I see questions a lot on the forums and the Facebook groups, which is whether or not to tell an employer you're autistic and how do you approach that? So let's say somebody's in a situation, they're working in an office, and there's a lot of fluorescent lights, it's an open floor plan, and there's people talking constantly around you, partly because it's part of their job and partly just because people do that. And maybe you're realizing that, uh, you know, you're not getting anything done. You're having trouble with executive function because you don't have the kind of lighting and the kind of quiet and space you need to do your job. And let's say in our hypothetical scenario that this is Megacorp 123 mm-hmm. and they have a big HR. Nonetheless, you know that your department is a hotbed of gossip and politics. How do you approach this situation? Well, first of all, I would think through what it is you're trying to accomplish if you disclose. Mm-hmm. And figure out who you want to talk to. For instance, is it a direct supervisor? Is it someone in HR? You need to figure out who it is. Mm-hmm. And then schedule a time and place. Because, of course, bureaucracy. Right. <laughs> and make sure you have a list of mm-hmm. saying, this is what I want to talk about. And this is what I have in mind. How can we negotiate on this? Because they may not be able to do everything on your list. But they may be able to come up with other ideas or meet you halfway. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like part of preparing for this is preparing to have an open mind about the way that they might yes. respond. Because my feeling after being in those situations and not knowing what to do, and first of all, not even knowing that I'm autistic. So, you know, it, I didn't even really have this as an option in my head. I'm very much on the defensive in that situation, in feeling like I have to prove something in feeling like that I have to prove that I can do my job even though I'm possibly outing myself as autistic. So how would you kind of gauge, let's say that I want to talk to my immediate supervisor and maybe it's not somebody I know very well and that I have kind of neutral feelings about, but I'm not really sure how they feel about me. How would you even start that conversation? Well, I'd go a more honest route, but still be tactful. I'm like, hey, I'm having some issues with some tasks, not necessarily saying everything, but like 
maybe even list a task uh-huh. or an assignment or something. Say, can we find a time to talk about this? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a way to wiggle in mm-hmm. because you're you're setting it up as like something structured, like there's something specific to talk about, and then you can kind of use that as a way to introduce autism in there. Mm-hmm. And you don't say, like, I'm everything that's bad. You say, I'm doing very well with this, this, and this. But this part of it, I'm not doing so well, and here's why. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've run into is that if I tell somebody I'm autistic, what, and we're talking about muggles out in the world, in real life, if I tell them I'm autistic, they immediately think that means somebody that doesn't have any ability to empathize with other people, that that can't have interpersonal relationships. You know, it's pretty it's pretty bad. You know, they're assuming that you're like that guy from the Big Bang Theory or like Dustin Hoffman and Rain Man. And I end up finding myself saying things like, I am what used to be called Asperger's and is now referred to as autism. Do you find yourself using that kind of bridging language to help the other person kind of come up to speed with what autism means? No, I actually don't. I very rarely do now. I I say... No, that's not how autism works, and that's actually uh, a stereotype. Uh-huh. And, and then I'll kind of compare it to another stereotype. Like, I say, sometimes I'll say, like, would you say everyone who has glasses, when they take them off, is broken? Mm. Something like that. Mm-hmm. Or, or would you say that... Someone who likes a certain thing is evil, that kind of stuff. It's just like it's pointing out the stereotype there. And right. it usually wakes them up, but they're like, oh, that's the same idea. That's some excellent advice right there. So, is that something that you felt more confident, that kind of approach that you felt more confident in after you entered the grad program? Yes. Uh, Maybe even a little bit earlier than that. I just, I was getting really tired of having to describe everything. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I'm like, excuse me, you can do some research yourself. Right. I, I'm not doing it for you anymore. Right. I already do enough. Yeah. So I'm a little more confrontational than some people, but mm-hmm. I try to do it tactfully and I don't always do it, but <laughs> I tend to forgive myself for it. Yay, (laughs) as you should, because it sounds like it's working. It is. And that's that's absolutely the best news that any of us could possibly hear. Do you feel like there's kind of a renaissance happening, particularly for adult women in terms of autism? I think it's just starting. Mm -hmm. I think it's just starting. It really... We're just being heard finally. I think because there's finally enough of us that are diagnosed and self-aware enough to push back. Mm-hmm. 
there's enough of our voices raised that we can't be ignored anymore. And, you know, for decades, it was just Temple Grandin. That was it. (laughs) If you didn't present the way Temple Grandin presents, then you couldn't possibly be autistic. And, you know, the current figures are that they think, oh, you know, there might be three male autistics to every single female autistic. I kind of feel like it's more half and half. What do you think? I definitely believe so. And I actually might think there's a little more than the half and half because of how common masking is. Mm-hmm. Well, both men and women mask, but mm-hmm. we as women are much more proficient at it. Mm-hmm. And I, sorry, mom. <laughs> uh, I believe it's because we are receptive to socialization, but we have a hard time doing it in real time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we know what we're doing wrong. We just can't do it right fast enough for the, exactly. for the holistic culture. Exactly. And how fun has it been to hang out with people who are openly autistic that you don't have to go through this sort of elaborate translation with is it is that like the best I think it is <laughs> it it is it really is and there's certain niche cultures where you'll definitely find autistic people and it's amazing I it's like it's not even just language patterns it's how you move what what you focus on like mm-hmm. I've been with a group of people who have been distracted by the exact same thing at the exact same time. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like when you're talking to somebody that you can tell if they're autistic or not? Yeah, I can. You can now. I can't tell. And I, I'm wondering if that's something that I'll be able to pick up on more as I'm more part of the culture. How long do you feel like it took you to be able to spot that? Or was it just something that you always kind of were able to see? It took me about five years to figure it out. Okay. Because um, I did I did work with children for an extended period of time, autistic children. Mm-hmm. And that did help me mm. start seeing the characteristics but I worked with variety ages so I could see how symptoms changed as people got older. Oh, wow. So by seeing like a continuum of symptoms, I can pick it up in different age groups. Wow. That would be really helpful. So there must be books that talk about that, right? I mean, (laughs) there has to be. Okay. Well, Tama, if there aren't, will you write one, please? (laughs) (laughs) I've been told over and over to write a book. Thing is, I get distracted. (laughs) Well, that's that's understandable, but that's when it's good to have somebody to work with you on the project because there are lots of autistic writers. And, you know, if you pair yourself up with one and co-write a book where you've done all this research and everything and that's the part that you contribute. So if there are any autistic nonfiction writers out there that are interested in writing a book about 
autistic development or whatever Tema wants to pursue, maybe a guide about being in the workforce, all these wonderful things that Tema has studied and is sharing. By all means, get a hold of Tema. You can find her on Facebook as Tema Eve, E-V-E. What's another way that people might be able to reach you if they want to? Is is Facebook the best way? Uh, you can uh, email me at my student email. Okay. Uh, and we will provide that on the website. And that way, if that email changes, you can let me know and I can change it there. <laughs> because somebody may be listening to this 10, 15 years from now. It's currently 2019. So go check out the Actually Autistic Podcast website, which is on uh, WebPress. And there will be a link to this episode on the podcast itself. And you can just click there and there will be information on Tema that you can reach there. So Tema... I understand that you like Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones and the Marvel Universe. So again, it's it's May 2nd. This is 2019. We just had a huge movie come out, right? For Marvel? Yeah, unfortunately, I haven't gotten to see it. I haven't gotten to see it. I'm seeing it tomorrow. You're seeing it tomorrow. I'm... All right, so our listeners are safe from any spoilers at this point because yeah. you haven't seen it yet. And let's see, and Game of Thrones just had the, what, the Battle of Winterfell recently? Yes, I have some very decided opinions on it. And, well, okay, so now for those of you who for some reason, have not seen that episode yet, just push that fast forward button a few times if you don't want to hear any spoilers. So let's hear your opinions. Okay. So my biggest thing was how they wrapped up the arc mm. of the uh, the Whites and the Night King mm -hmm. and how they treat fantasy in general mm -hmm. and the TV show versus the books because I've read the books as well. Mm -hmm. And... It just did not seem right in a single episode after you've built up a single villain and all his cohorts for seven seasons and he, he gets killed in one episode. <laughs> well, you know, I was reading something and apparently it took them 11 weeks to shoot that episode. I, I re yes, it took them 11 weeks, but it's like, if you think about it, it's like, Come on, this was supposed to be the, the evil of the evil, the ex existential threat of all threats that you right. showed in the very first episode, and you don't really complete it and explain and or explain anything. So once that episode has happened, what's left now? Well, the only thing that's left now is basically the political battles. I see. And the war for the Iron Throne. Got it. Got it. So, in a way, this villain, it just feels like kind of an empty plot device at this point. Is that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, in the books, George R. R. Martin weaves them together. They're not separate. Right. But what you have is characters that may not believe what's happening, even though it's actually happening. 
Interesting. And they purposely, for some strange reason, kept the fantasy elements completely separate from the rest, which I think was a huge disservice to the material. Do you play D&D or any other kind of RPG games? I play D&D occasionally, though. Right now my group is on hiatus. I feel like it's the curse of almost all RPG tabletop games that we never can consistently stay together for a long period. It's a really difficult time for a D&D game. Do you have a family, all of that, that you're juggling as well right now? I'm not married. I don't have kids, but I have my family who are very close to me, and we live in the same area. Right. And so you have those familial relationships to be part of and maintain in the midst of all of this. Are they excited about you getting your degree and everything? Oh, yes. It's all starting to sink in with everyone because I only have a year left and everyone's like, oh, my God, it's going to happen. She's really going to get her master's. And it was like they said they knew I could do it, but just the realization that it's going to happen has been a huge thing. And it's not just my parents. It's my brother. It's my brother's girlfriend. It's my aunts and uncles. It's my cousins. It's the family friends. Everyone knows. It's like it was like the first time I ever had a relationship within an hour the entire family knew. (laughs) Well, that's really touching and it really sounds like you've got a nice solid support system behind you. That's that's phenomenal. That's really the best, isn't it? Yes, though it has been interesting because my mother and brother are neurotypical. Mm-hmm. My father is quirky. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Got it. And how does he feel about you defining your particular quirkiness in this way? He's accepting of it. He actually seems somewhat proud of it. I, he, I think he likes seeing that I am claiming myself. Mm-hmm. I think it's the same with all my family members. Once I started saying I'm autistic and dropped masking, that was the hardest part. Was I, it? I started drop, I started dropping it. All of a sudden, people started seeing me very differently, mm. in a good way. Mm-hmm. It was like people were attracted to the energy that seemed to come out. So, when you stopped masking, how did you? do that because I talk to a lot of people who say I want to stop masking and I don't know how was it an immediate thing for you of going phew okay I can stop doing all that crap or was it more of a process of going oops I'm masking again I'm going to drop that oops up oh, oh, I did it again how it did that process, process work well it really stopped after I had a burnout Mm-hmm. I, I've had three of them throughout my life. and How did that look for the, you, that burnout? It was like everything collapsed. Every coping mechanism I had, any control on my emotions, on my anxiety, was unable to function. It was just, it felt like I was breaking. And it, this time it came in waves instead of all at once. It's very weird. Mm-hmm. And this was my third one. 
first one I didn't understand it, but this one, I was just so tired and I felt so awful. I'm like, why, why do I feel like this? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, oh, I'm masking. Mm-hmm. I haven't been doing what I need to. And it was at that moment I'm like, okay, we're going to just keep doing what we need to do now. Mm-hmm. And it's not easy. Some days I'll feel nervous about doing it, but I'm like, I'll look in the mirror. I'm like, okay, we know it's a bad thing. Let's go. Yeah. And if they don't like it, too bad, so sad. Mm-hmm. How long did that burnout last? That one lasted two years. Oof. Well, that you can go through that for two years, come out on the other end of it, come up with some strategies for not masking, and then go to frickin' grad school. <laughs> that's, that's wonderful and just such a helpful and inspiring story, Tema. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Before we go, is there anything that you would like to say to our audience? Okay, so one of the things I have to say is you are not bad for being autistic. We get a lot of feedback from people around us saying there's something so wrong with us that we have to be fixed. You don't need to be fixed. You need assistance. That's very different from being broken. And don't be afraid to tell someone that you're not broken, that you are you, and that is perfectly okay. All right. Well, that is beautiful and helpful and wonderful advice. And it sounds like exactly the sort of thing a social worker would say. (laughs) (laughs) So I can tell that you are well on your way to getting that license that you've worked so very hard for so that you can help other autistics. Thank you so much, Tema, for being actually autistic. You're welcome. I'm so glad I did this. (laughs) Thank you so much. And we'll talk again sometime, okay? Okay. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye. Bye.